This is a bullet. I, I'm not packing when I preach. I just have this for an illustration. This bullet right now is essentially harmless. It, it can't hurt you. Even if I throw it really hard at your head, it probably will do very little damage. <laughs> Why is this bullet harmless? Well, it's not moving. That's part of it. But the thing that makes a bullet least effective is the lack of a target. If that bullet's not directed at something, it's certainly not going to do uh, its intended purpose. Bullet has to have a target for it to be effective. Our faith is a lot like a bullet. Faith can be something that is incredibly powerful. But if misdirected, it can actually be quite harmful. If your faith isn't directed at the right target, your faith can end up tearing you down instead of empowering you and building you up and moving you forward. There's a lot of folks out there who like the idea of faith, but they don't have the right object of their faith. They like the idea of faith, but they put all of their faith in money, in stuff, even in themselves. That can sound really good, that you should just have faith in yourself, but it doesn't take you long, of a lot of time of having faith in yourself to realize we just don't have enough in us by ourselves to pull it off. We can't fulfill ourselves. We can't meet all of the, the expectations we put on ourselves. We can't do all of the good that we see the world needs. Our faith needs a better target. So today we're going to ask the question, why should Jesus be that target? Why is Jesus worthy of our faith? Why should he be the one in whom we trust? We're going to look at two young women who had an encounter with Jesus. We'll talk about how their stories intersect with our stories and how Jesus proved himself to be worthy of our faith. Turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 43. What I'll be doing is I'll kind of be telling the story, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse. So I want you to have your Bibles out. I want you to be able to look at it with me. And we're going to talk about even some key words that we're going to pay attention to. <clears throat> but this story, more than anything, tells that, that faith in Jesus brought restoration and new life to the two women of this story. Faith in Jesus brought complete healing, transformation, restoration, and even defeated death. There's two women in this story. One was just born yesterday. The other one is at least in her teens. The baby girl is cute and happy and sweet and giggly and all the things you want a baby girl to be. But the woman, she's just found out she's had a pro she has a problem. 
her monthly cycle is off. Well, it's not off so much as it is on. She is bleeding, hemorrhaging all the time. Something is wrong. At the same time in history, this woman's sickness, her, her hemorrhaging started and this little girl was born. The little girl grew up like every little girl would. She was happy and sweet and she turned one and two and three and began to walk and toddle and say dada and all those wonderful things. And over those same few years, the woman, she saw doctor after doctor. She tried to understand what was going on with her, why she was wrong, and she started to feel some of the consequences of being in a culture where that type of medical condition actually made you somebody who couldn't even come into the community. She became to be ostracized. That little girl, her dad was a, a synagogue leader, an official in the city. He was what we might call upper middle class. She was happy, she had a good life, and she would go and, and she, would, she would learn from her dad and her mom all the ways of God, the ways that he delivered Moses and their people from, from Pharaoh, the ways that David led his armies into battle and fell into temptation, but, but was still a, a man after God's own heart. She grew up knowing the great things of the faith, but this woman, after going broke, from all the doctors, couldn't even go into the synagogue, certainly not the temple. And she felt more and more ostracized, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years. She didn't know what was wrong. That little girl, those same 12 years, lived a really happy life normal childhood, I imagine. But then she got sick. They didn't know what was wrong with her. They brought in all the doctors. The doctors did all their best and their worst. And, and, and her dad was somebody who was known in the, the city. People were praying for this little girl. And one day a doctor came in and said, that 12-year-old girl, there's nothing else we can do for her. It's truly in God's hands. And a little bit later, they came back and said, it doesn't look like she's going to make it. She's as thin as a rail. We don't know what the problem is, but prepare the funeral. It won't be much longer. Enough to drive a dad insane. But he had heard of this man, this man who had gone around and he was supposedly casting out demons and the other synagogue rulers of the other towns told him that he would come in and teach and everything he said was, was absolutely right, but then he would, he would do crazy things and even heal people. And this man set out to find that man, set out to find Jesus. Around the same time, that woman broke uh, completely ostracized from the community at the end of her rope might have heard somebody talking about that same man Jesus who had been going around and he made he made blind people see again something that had never been heard of he did all sorts of incredible miraculous things and she thought if there's any hope left for me it's in him that's where our story starts today so I'd like to read uh, verses 21 to 24 and we'll begin going through this. Read along with me. 
When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressed against him. First, we see Jairus, that synagogue leader we had just talked about. Now, a synagogue leader, he wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a rabbi. He was somebody who was kind of like our deacons. They're in charge of the nuts and bolts of the church. They're, they're here to make sure things run. You know, if, if Brother James and I uh, flew to Hawaii tomorrow and, and didn't tell nobody about it, this church would keep going because we've got a good deacon body who, who's able to keep the doors open and keep the bills paid and make sure everything in fact, if we went away, it might even run a little smoother. I don't know. But it, they, we have good deacons who keep things running. That's what Jairus did. It was an honored position. It was something that people in the community really looked up to and respected. And that's why it should cause us a little bit of pause when we see that this respected man, maybe we would think of somebody who sits on the city council or, or some sort of government official or a big businessman, throws himself at Jesus' feet. He gives up all dignity immediately. Now, any dad of a little girl understands I will do anything to, 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 to do this, but it shows, our, it shows his level of trust in Jesus, and, and there's no doubting in his voice. He says, if you do this, she will be made well. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, x-ray vision into the scriptures here. So, this, there's a word in the Greek, and we don't see this in the English, but there's a word that's used all throughout this story. It's called sozo. And it was typically used to, to, to say two, one of two things, or really both things, to save somebody or to heal. So if I, if I said, oh, I'm saved, I might say sozo. If I said, I am healed from this, I might say sozo. It's the same word, and it was used, the same, used in both of those ways all over in Greek times, Okay. Now, there's other words for healing, and there's other words for salvation, but Mark and even Jesus are playing a word game with us. Because what they're going to see is that these two people are, are they're pictures of something that is greater than healing. They're pictures of what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes when you do that, we see physical healing. I hear stories from missionaries that I can't wrap my head around. They don't fit into my theological boxes, you know. Uh, but I don't see that a whole lot. But I'll tell you what I do see. When I see people coming to faith and being changed by the living God, and we say that they are saved from their sins, they're saved from their life, and their life turns around, that is just as powerful and perhaps more miraculous than any sort of physical healing that we can pray for. And so that's what he says. He, he says, if you, if you will, you can save my daughter. You can make her well and she will live. We're going to track that word as we go through. And it just says, as he went on his way, the crowd was pressing in against him. If you've ever brought candy into a preschool room, you know what this is. You know what's, what's happening here. If you ever or brought a pizza into a, a youth gathering, 
immediately just swarms of people that you didn't know existed come all around you. And that's the idea is Jesus is saying, okay, let's go to your house. We're going to take care of this. And all of a sudden, people are just left and right following him, trying to, trying to get at him. Everybody's bumping against him, touching him. The, maybe the, the disciples are, are kind of trying to hold them back, but I'm sure they're not very effective because later we're going to see that everybody was kind of crowding around Jesus. And that's where, where we'll pick up in verse 25. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. I sympathize with this woman when it says she had seen many doctors. It's funny, you know, the gospel of Luke. Luke is a doctor, and he omits that. He's like, I'm not going to tell people about that. And it's really ironic, but it, how many people have seen the same doctor as this woman have seen? You know, you, you feel like you, you go to doctor after doctor after doctor, and you never seem to get an answer, and you only seem to get worse. And every medicine they give you counteracts with something else that's going on. And, oh, it, it, it's frustrating. And it's hard. And in a time when there was no such thing as uh, health insurance or social safety nets, this woman gave everything she had. She, she did what she thought made sense. You know, and you're supposed to go to the doctor when you have a medical problem. That's a good thing. But she literally put everything she had into that, that medicine, that healing that the doctor could bring in nothing. In fact, she just got worse. They... Uh, reading about what doctors did at that time, it, it's a little humorous and very sad. They, they, knew, they knew almost nothing about the human body. They knew the bones and the muscles, and then beyond that, they didn't know how anything worked. So they made people drink weird things. They put strange things all over your body and, and cutting and bleeding and all these things that were tried out. And this woman was probably scarred. She had probably been made sick over and over and over again. And I can just see her maybe even her, her hair falling out, sneaking up behind Jesus. Remember, she's not allowed to come uh, near a rabbi. She was considered unclean. She wasn't allowed to come uh, near anybody who was clean. She was supposed to let everybody know, hey, you shouldn't touch me or you're going to be unclean as well. That's how they operated in that society when they didn't understand things like, like germs and soap and things. So the, she sneaks up behind Jesus and there's the same faith that we see in her words that we saw earlier. She says, if I just touch his clothing. You know, Jairus was so sure. He just said, all you have to do is, is come and, and touch this girl. Just lay her hands on her and she will be saved. They weren't coming to Jesus and just saying, hey, this is just a Hail Mary. I don't know what else to do. I've tried all the normal things that I would expect to work. And now I'm down to you. So will you come and try your thing? They weren't doing that. They were convinced that Jesus was the one who could save them, who could save their daughter. Their faith had the right target. So Jesus uh, is walking through the crowd. She, she sneaks up behind him. If I just touch his robe, and this was a very common belief back then, even if you went into the shadow of a, a very righteous or a powerful person, or if you just touched part of their clothing, that you may be healed. She's superstitious. 
The Bible doesn't talk about this anywhere. It's, that's not how God works. She's, she's dealing with superstition. So what I find comforting is that her faith is flawed. You know, she doesn't have the best, she doesn't have the, the doctoral degree in theology. She's got a wrong idea. But because her faith is in the right person, God still blesses her and heals her. So we'll pick up again at verse uh, t- uh, 20, uh, I'm sorry, thir- verse 30. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? But he was, uh, but he was looking around to see who had done this. As he was looking around to see who had done this, the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You know, the disciples, they answer him. I'm there, I've skipped a, I skipped a verse. I'm sorry. I knew something wasn't right. Verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, who touched me? Literally, everybody is jostling Jesus. Everybody wants to get close to this famous teacher. Maybe there's a whole lot of people there who, who are sick, and for some reason, God is not blessing him. But, but at some point, this woman's faith is effective because it was in the right person. And God heals her through Jesus. And this one of the strangest scenes in the Bible, I, don't have the, I probably don't have the right answer, but Jesus actually turns around and says, who touched me? There's two ways to understand that. You might say, well, Jesus knows everything, so he had to know who touched her, and he's just kind of playing a little game. Text doesn't seem to talk talk like that. It seems to have a a whole lot of question in Jesus' mind. And so I think what we're seeing here, and we see this a lot in the book of Mark, is Jesus' full humanity. You know, he had to be made fully human so that he could represent us before the Father. And what is more human than not knowing something. And so in a mysterious way that theologians will continue to argue about forever, Jesus doesn't know something. And he turns around and he, he says, he, it says that he's looking at all the people and the idea is that he's, he's kind of searching their souls. He's, like, he's looking around and he's saying, who is this person? And he's looking through their eyes and into their hearts. And finally, he makes this woman stand up in front of everybody, which may have been embarrassing she may have gotten in trouble for this, but I think Jesus knows that faith requires action. You can't just have a, a secret faith. If she had just tapped his rope and then, and then left, that's, that's not real faith. He, he shows her the right way to respond to God by saying, this is what he's done for me. And so she stands and confesses everything that she's done. And I can imagine the fear that she must have been feeling. I'm sure relief, I mean, all of a sudden it says that she sensed in her body something had changed. Something was different. What she had suffered through for 12 years, gone. And that's got to be a lot of joy. But all of a sudden, she's surrounded by probably a whole bunch of men who are saying, what are you doing touching the teacher. And Jesus singles her out and she confesses the whole thing. So I wonder how much relief she would have got when she heard verse 34. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. This is the only time that Jesus calls anyone daughter. 
It's the only time that's ever addressed in Scripture. But his love for this woman was so much, it was so high, it was so compassionate. And you remember, he does say in other places, those who, those who are with me, who believe in me, those are my mother and father and sister and brother. He says, you're a different person now. You're, you're not just some woman who was estranged, who had to live maybe outside the city or had to stay in her house, couldn't go out and do anything, couldn't come to temple. No, you're part of my family now. Jesus brings her in and he says, daughter. My translation helps me in, in this verse. I don't know. What yours say? I know a lot of them say, your faith has made you well. And that's that same word, so-and-so. It's that same word, your faith has saved you. And Jesus is playing a little word game here because he's, uh, Mark has already talked about being healed. He's used a totally different word. Now Jesus says, your faith has saved you. This woman is the perfect picture of what happens to us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but, but it's not just about what we get out of Jesus, but who we become when we put our faith in him as we are adopted into his family. He calls her daughter. There's another daughter in this story, Jairus' daughter. I can't, I, if I was Jairus, this would be driving me crazy. If you ever had somebody, you want to get them somewhere, and then they stop and kind of look at some flowers or something, and you're just like going insane. If you've ever gone to Disney World with your family, you know what I'm talking about. In fact, one of my first, um, oh, I don't know, or my most meaningful interaction with Southerners was when our family went to Disney World, and we were trying to get to some attraction or another. I don't know what it was or, or what it was, but, man, we, we, were, we were booking it. We were doing our fast walk. And there was this kind of line of three ladies, wonderful ladies, and they were doing this walk. And we were like trying to get around them. Like, you know, you know how it is at any theme park, you, you got to kind of wedge yourself between anybody. And these ladies had formed a, a formidable wall that we were not going to get around. And they saw that we were trying to get around them. It was a little embarrassing, and, and they were so sweet. And so they said, I think, well, it's still the most southern thing I've ever heard. They said, you got to learn how to mosey. Do you all do that? You're just moseying. If I were Jairus at this point, I would be like, Jesus, my daughter is dying. I would have picked him up, carried him on my shoulders. It's not the time to mosey, but Jesus is actually with a little girl's life hanging in the balance, he's showing his ultimate control over sickness, over death, over healing. Don't worry, Jairus. I need to take care of this woman first. All right? That's when Jairus gets the news, verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? One thing that Mark does a whole lot, he does really well, is he, he puts up two different pictures of people. And throughout the rest of the story, we're going to see pictures of, uh, uh, pictures of a person who gets it, a person who is faithful, a person who believes in Jesus, and a person, we're going to see a group of people who have no faith whatsoever. And these are kind of the first representative. The idea is like, Jairus, we told you. See, he doesn't do any harm, sorry. Jairus, we told you not to bother him. She's too far gone. Why, why are you still nagging this guy? She's gone. Let her go, Jairus. Let her go. And, and the emotion has just got to be in his stomach, just that drop 
But listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus overheard, verse 36, what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him. He entered the place where the child was. Then he took, he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. See, we're, we're hit with this story of this woman and her incredible faith that she's, she's going through the crowd, willing to get punished so that she could just get close to Jesus because she knows he is the healer. And then when Jairus has lost all hope and they said, your, your daughter is dead, it's over, stop bothering him, let it go, man. We've got the funeral already started up for her. Jesus looks at him and he says, do not be afraid, only believe. It's one of those, it's another one of those words we don't see in English, that word believe, it's the verb form of faith. We don't have a, a verb for faith, but if we did, it would be faith, just faith in Jesus, just, just put your trust in him. And that's what Jesus says, it's not about doubt, it's not about fear, it's about your faith. Just trust me. I wonder if some of you just need to write that everywhere you look. I need, that's got to be my life verse from now on. It says, no more fear, only faith. And so Jairus, apparently, uh, that, that does something to him. And, and he says, okay, let's go. Let's finish this out. And Jesus takes just a, the handful of apostles or disciples who are closest. And these guys are kind of singled out throughout Mark as the ones who get to see the most miraculous things. And they go and they see these mourners. And they're, they're, they're just causing a racket, it says. And what would happen... At that time, it was customary to actually hire people. When somebody died, you would hire, and I think one of the teachings said at least two uh, wailers, not, not getting a wail, but wailing, crying, uh, and one flute. And what you would do is you would just have people making a racket and, and just crying out and mourning and just wailing over this lost person. And it was, it was a way of dealing with the death that was very common. And so these people are at the house and they're mourning this little girl and they're, they're shouting and these are just paid people. And, and Jesus just says, what are you doing? And he says, she's not dead. She's asleep. Now, make no mistake, she was dead. All right. Her life had stopped. Her heart had stopped beating. All of the scientific things that happen when you're dead, she was that, okay? But Jesus changes everything about reality. And in fact, the, the New Testament word for death throughout the, 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 rest, the rest of the time you read the New Testament, you'll see a lot, especially Paul, who used this idea of when people are dead, they're not dead, they're just asleep. Because what does sleep imply? That you're going to wake up again. That's what death is to a person who has trusted in Christ. Jesus is giving us this picture. 
when, when, he, when he is the, the object of our faith, even death just turns into sleep. We don't have to fear it anymore. All the preparations that, that man makes to try to push off their death or try to overcome it through their own means, whether leaving a, a, a massive legacy, putting your names on buildings, and all the silly things that we do because we are, Hebrews says, afraid of death. Those things just wipe away when Jesus is in the picture. When your life is about Christ, you know that your death is only asleep. So he goes in and he, he, he speaks, and I think just a beautiful way of Mark putting it, he, he remembers the Aramaic. Aramaic was what they spoke at that time in that culture. Everything Jesus said was probably in Aramaic, and they, they wrote it down in Greek, and now we have it in English. But those Aramaic words are, are just ringing in the ears of the person who is telling the story. He says, Talitha kum, rise, little girl, get up. He commands the dead to walk. That same Jesus that just kind of dawdled, that, that moseyed a little bit because he wasn't worried about what was going to happen to this little girl. We see the same thing when uh, Lazarus is, is, uh, died and resurrected in, in the book of John. Jesus delays. Why? Because he has power over death. He literally can talk to you, say, little girl, rise up, and death is erased. That's the power of Jesus. So is Jesus worthy of your faith? Is Jesus the one that you should make the target of your trust? Oh, I think so. Because when you do, the same principles and teachings that this story is giving us becomes your reality. Because Jesus still offers transformation, he still offers restoration, and he still offers eternal life to those even if you are down, if, if you are completely hopeless. That's what he's offering us today. So if you're here and you're just here because of church, and you've always gone here, and your daddy went to church, and you, you, you always go to church, and that's what you do, and sometimes you get chicken, so it works out. If you're here for that, you're here for the wrong reason, because the chicken is great, but Jesus is offering you eternal life. He's offering to take the greatest fear you may have, the end of your life, and transform it into sleep, something I love very dearly. Jesus changes your reality. He erases fear. He erases the consequences of your sin. He offers you salvation. That's why we're here today. That's, that's why we worship. That's why you didn't go to the lake. I appreciate everybody who's here today on this long weekend. There's people here who have just come up short in life. There's people here who had huge expectations of themselves and, and they just didn't pan out. There's people here who have gone through rough, rough times. There's people here who are still going through that. And you are without hope. I can't guarantee that when Jesus comes into your life that all those hard times are going to change like that, but I can tell you that when Jesus is the target of your faith, the rest of life makes sense. 
The, the rest of life is something that you are able to go through now because you don't have all of the fear holding you back. You don't have all those sinful tendencies that, that you want to hang on to because your life is now committed to Jesus. And so we're going to take a time where we just look at where we are in our life. And I'll invite you. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. And maybe you are, maybe you're a believer, but man, you haven't been living it. I want to make Jesus the target of my faith again. I want, to, I want to know that life that he gives. I want to know what it's like to, to have power over death and not be worried about the, the things of this world. And I want to know what it means not to have my sins counted against me and constantly worried about what I'm doing wrong because I just want to trust him.